Hi there! Welcome to The Music's Not a Threat, a podcast about culture, history, and an anarchist pop band called Chumbawamba. Today we'll be examining all those things and more by looking at the background and themes of a Chumbawamba song called Introduction. Yeah, it would have been nice to use this for the introduction episode, or even the second episode after we did the title song, but oh well. The album that this song appears on, ABCDEFG, was released in 2010, two years before the band broke up, and it ended up being the last album they made together. So in a way, this is an introduction to the beginning of the end. And interestingly, for me anyway, the subject they're considering at the beginning of the end is a familiar one. Music. The album's title, ABCDEFG, refers to the musical notes, ABCDEF and G. And with this song, they're not just thinking about music, but thinking about what music is for. Which reminds me of another song of theirs. You know, the one that goes... The music's not a threat! Action! The music inspires! Can be a threat! From the beginning to the end of their career, they never stopped thinking about this whole music thing that they were doing. And while the two songs, Introduction and The Music's Not a Threat, are about kind of similar themes, this song sounds very different from that one. Even more so than Sing About Love from last episode, this is a quieter, softer, more acoustic chumbawamba. In the dark times will we be singing Yes, we'll be singing of the dark times Every new In the dark times will we be singing Yes, we'll be singing of the dark times Honestly, this song is a little bit too slow for me. I like it, it's pleasant, just a little slow. But it has a good reason for sounding this way. And that reason is, the band was watching the show Mad Men on TV. They heard a song they liked the sound of, and they wanted to write something like that. So we're gonna have to talk about that episode of Mad Men. But in order to really understand this song, we're gonna need to back up farther than a late 20-aughts TV show. Farther than the fictional 60s that it's set in. And we're ultimately going to have to back up a couple of millennia. But first, let's just go back to this podcast episode on Sing About Love, where you may remember I quoted a poem by Bertolt Brecht. Well... That's who wrote the lyrics for this song. Now, Brecht is spelled B-R-E-C-H-T. I think in German it's actually pronounced closer to Brecht, but for whatever reason, everyone who I've ever heard say it in English says Brecht. Possibly because Brecht sounds like I'm trying to say breast in a bad Sean Connery impression. Anyway, I quoted Brecht briefly in the last episode, and Chumbawamba liked him a lot, so future episodes will go more in detail on him. But briefly, Brecht was a politically active German writer of plays, poetry, and literary theory, starting in the 1920s. Unfortunately for him, he was also very vocally not a Nazi, and the 1930s turned out to be a bad time for Germans who weren't Nazis, so he fled the country and wouldn't return until the end of World War II. The specific poem this episode's lyrics are based on comes from the Svenborg poems, a collection of political poetry and songs written during Brecht's time living in exile. The second section of the Svenborg poems begins with these lines. Or rather, since the original poem is in German, one English translation of it begins with these lines. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing, about the dark times. Just like the track Introduction is a preface to the album ABCDEFG, this poem is also a preface to a collection of songs. The Svenborg poems that follow it have titles like The Ballad of, or Something Song, although there's no music provided, at least in the versions I've found. This poem by itself I've seen called Motto, but as far as I can tell in the original collection, it's just placed at the beginning of the section without its own title. So let's talk about the idea of songs for the dark times, about the dark times. What does that mean? 
I think maybe the easiest way to understand it is to contrast it with some alternatives. Alternative motto number one. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing, to distract us from the dark times. This is kind of the opposite idea. Not songs of the dark times, but songs of the good times, to escape from the dark times. Escapism is kind of a dirty word in terms of art criticism. It's an accusation against art that's frivolous. Yeah, maybe it'll take your mind off the bad times, but it doesn't engage with them. It doesn't do anything about them. The music's not a threat, in other words. Alternative motto number two. In the dark times, will there also be singing? No, there won't. This is the opposite of the escapism argument, or maybe they're just two sides of the same coin. It's the idea that maybe there shouldn't be singing in the dark times, or of the dark times, because maybe music itself is inherently frivolous. And when the going gets tough, time and energy wasted on something like music would be better spent on more serious matters. Brecht didn't believe that. He thought that some art was escapist, and he disapproved of that. But he also thought that art could be used to inform people and motivate them to action, keeping them engaged with the world rather than carrying them away from it. I've studied Brecht some before, mostly in a theater context, and in the theater he's probably most well known for the idea of Verfremdungseffekt. Verfremdung is a German word that implies distance or strangeness. Basically, he wanted to create a distance between the audience and the art. He didn't want the audience to get lost in his plays or kind of swept up in the emotions. He wanted people to sort of hold his work at arm's length and scrutinize it and think critically about the characters and their choices and their situations and how those things applied to the real world. It's interesting to compare this to the last episode, where we talked about Dick Gawkin wanting to provoke emotion as a motivator for social change. Now we've got Brecht, who seems like he wants to do exactly the opposite. So should music that aims to inspire action aim to provoke thought or provoke emotion? We've actually gotten a little off track here talking about Brecht's literary theories. We've already covered basically everything we need to for the poem, and by extension, Chumbawamba's lyrics for the song. But maybe keep this idea of thought versus emotion in mind as we pivot from talking about the words to talking about the tune. As while the lyrics were taken more or less directly from Brecht, with some tweaking and additions, the melody has a much longer, more indirect journey. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, the band got the idea for the tune from a song they heard on an episode of Mad Men. Here's a clip of that. By the waters, the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept, and wept for thee, Zion. But to explain that song and where it comes from, we need to go all the way back a couple of millennia and talk about the Babylonian Empire. Babylon was an ancient city in the area that's currently Iraq, but almost 3,000 years ago it was the center of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire did what empires do. They struck back. Just like the British Empire, the Roman Empire, the Empire from Star Wars, they conquered territory, subjugated, killed, or abducted the local populace, replaced or rearranged the local government. Just standard empire stuff. And obviously all this conquering, abduction, subjugation that goes hand in hand with imperialism is not fun for the people it's happening to, but you don't usually hear about these things from their perspective because imperial history is usually written by the empires. But in the 500s BCE, the Babylonian Empire happened to do all those things to the kingdom of Judah. 
They trashed Judah's capital city of Jerusalem, including the temple that was their center of religious worship. They did the whole abduction subjugation thing to a chunk of the population and basically just turned the whole kingdom into an imperial spare room. And this would all just be another footnote in the bloody history of empires, except that the history of Judah got written down and collected into what became the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible, also called the Old Testament. It's pretty popular, maybe you've heard of it. A lot of folks study it religiously. So the history of this particular moment in imperialism is interesting, first because the most read source on it is from the perspective of the people who got conquered, not from the conquerors. And secondly, because the reason that this source is so frequently studied is that it's part of the foundational religious text for several of the world's major religions. As such, I can't really talk about just history here. We're talking about real events and real people, at least in the broad strokes I'll be talking about today, the religious version of events is more or less corroborated by other historical sources. But they're events and people that have been endowed with metaphorical and metaphysical significance by a couple billion of the world's people as of this recording. So, treading carefully here, we're going to try and do this in a way that's sensitive, accurate, and appropriately thorough given the runtime of the episode. This isn't Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. That movie's three and a half hours long. This episode is 25 minutes. So here goes, starting with Tehillim. Tehillim is the Hebrew name for a collection of religious poetry that's included in the Tanakh. In English, it's usually called the Book of Psalms. I'm simplifying the linguistics here, but Tehillim means praises, as in to sing the praises of, and psalm comes from the Greek word for music with instrumental accompaniment. Basically, the book is a collection of song lyrics before there were websites for this kind of thing. As for why the translators of the English Bible would use a Greek name for this book instead of the original Hebrew one, it's a good question, but we don't have time to get into that here. There are other parts of the Tanakh that get more into the history of the Babylonian captivity, but one of the songs in the Tehillim, number 137, is very specifically about it as well. I'd like to read it for you now in the original Hebrew. Except I don't speak Hebrew. So just like Che Guevara in the last episode, and the Brecht quotes from earlier, an English translation will have to do. In this case, the King James Bible, where Psalm 137 includes these lines. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So it's a song of mourning after being abducted and now being too depressed for music. Yeah, for a book whose original title translates to praises, not all of the Tehillim are particularly joyful. This is one of the sad ones. And reasonably so. It's a song about sad things and dark times. Some very specific sad things and dark times. But over the years, it's also gained weight and significance beyond just the literal meaning. For one example of this process, since it shows up in that song, let's talk about Zion. Literally, it's the name of a hill in the city of Jerusalem. As a figure of speech, sometimes it's used instead to refer to the city as a whole, sometimes to the whole surrounding area, and or the people who live in any of those areas. But after Babylon paved Jerusalem and put up a parking lot, everybody, especially the people who no longer live there, found that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Nostalgia is a powerful force, and looking at it in the rearview mirror, Zion becomes more than just a place. It's a wistful memory of the way things were before the dark times. It's a symbol or a metaphor for the good times, the good place. And Babylon becomes a metaphor for the opposite, the bad times, the bad place, everything oppressive and evil and wrong with the world. 
And this metaphorical Babylon carries through to Christianity as well. In the Christian New Testament, the book of Revelation includes a vision of the end of the world, which includes imagery of Babylon the Great, associating it with murder, filth, fornication, idolatry, and all-around wickedness. Classic empire. And while the true interpretation of the book of Revelation is a question for the ages, I'm going to guess that this wasn't meant to predict the literal resurgence of the Babylonian Empire, which at that point had been gone for centuries, but rather it's invoking the image as a more general symbol of empire and oppression and evil. The early Christians themselves, to put it mildly, had a rough relationship with the Roman Empire, and as such it's not hard to see how they might have found the stories and imagery of another empire relatable. The empires change, but the song remains the same. As just one more example, the metaphor carries through from Judaism to Christianity to another religious tradition, Rastafari. Based on my research, it seems like Rastafari is the preferred term rather than Rastafarianism, but as with everything I'm saying about other people's religions in this episode, don't take me as a primary source here. Quick history refresher, starting in the 16th century, the colonial empires of Europe, again, did what empires do kidnapping and enslaving millions of Africans and transporting them to the Americas. And Rastafari ideas developed among that African diaspora, first in Jamaica, then spreading elsewhere. And that history, that legacy of enslavement and imperialism, looms large over Rastafari thought, with a corresponding emphasis on achieving liberation and freedom from enslavement, both literal and metaphorical. And with literal enslavement a relatively recent memory, and its after-effects still impacting their daily lives, it's not surprising that the image of Babylon and captivity versus Zion and liberation would be especially resonant to people in those circumstances. Different time, different place, different people having been carried away into a different strange land by a different empire, but it isn't hard to see the parallel. And just like the psalm sets the Babylonian captivity to music, Rastafari ideas carry over into music as well. Taking, for example, probably the most famous Rasta of all time, Bob Marley's song Exodus parallels the liberation of enslaved Africans with another biblical story of freedom and captivity. Moses freeing the slaves from Egypt in the book of Exodus. Babylon is also used here, again as a symbol of oppression and captivity, and achieving liberation is, metaphorically, leaving Babylon. And the metaphor continues in other Bob Marley songs like Babylon System or Chant Down Babylon. Talking about religion and music, when it comes to the Tehillim, since there's no explicit musical instructions, lots of composers and musicians over the years have taken a crack at writing some. And in 1970, a Jamaican group called the Melodians recorded what is probably the most famous version of Psalm 137 in all of popular music. By the rivers of Babylon the Melodian's Rivers of Babylon starts from the English text of the psalm, incorporates some Rastafari terminology like King Alpha and Farai instead of Lord. It also works in some words from another psalm, as well as some original lyrics and sets it all to this tune that's much more upbeat than you might expect given the words. You may have heard 
this version, but the most famous recording of the Melodian song was actually a cover recorded by the disco group Boney M a few years later in 1978, which sounds like this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we This version sanitizes out all of the Rastafari terminology. King Alpha is changed back to Lord, Ofari is just replaced with here tonight. Even the basic Rastafari emphasis on liberation is toned down. Where the Melodians call on their listeners to sing a song of freedom, Boney M just wants to sing a song of love. This is pop music after all. And even more so than the Melodians version, Boney M has turned this song into an upbeat party jam. We'll come back to the tonal contrast between the melody and the lyrics here, but for now just keep it in mind and compare it to the next pop music version of Psalm 137 that we're going to talk about. It came out a year after the Melodians, but its history goes back about 200 years earlier. In the 1700s, English composer Philip Hayes wrote an arrangement of the first verses of Psalm 137 as a canon. Not that kind of canon. A canon, spelled with one N, is a classical music form similar to a round. Sometimes it's exactly like a round, where every part is the same. Some canons get more complicated, each repetition introducing variations on the theme. There's a lot of different types of canon. Anyway, Philip Hayes' version apparently sounded something like this. By the waters of Babylon We lay down and waters and So that's, I think, more or less, the original version that Philip Hayes wrote. But it's mostly notable now thanks to American singer-songwriter Don McLean. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Yeah, that's him. Just as a side note, American Pie is the first song where I can remember getting really interested in what the lyrics meant. Like, I remember finding this one website that was just a really long essay in like plain text just sort of breaking down all of the images in the song and what they probably meant it was really thorough and well researched and now that i think about it getting into that was kind of the first step into doing what i'm doing now anyway in 1971 a year after the melodian song came out don mclean released the album american pie which includes as its last track this song Bye. On the album itself, McLean credits the tune as traditional with the musical arrangement by L. Hayes and D. McLean. I believe L. Hayes here is Lee Hayes of the Weavers. No relation to Philip Hayes, I'm pretty sure. It's spelled differently. But it seems pretty clear listening to it that the original tune that they're riffing off of is Philip Hayes. They've taken out some of those fast little ornamentations, which I think is a change for the better. They've gotten rid of the fourth part of the round, which I think was the weakest bit anyway. It's simpler, more streamlined, less ostentatious, and, I now know from experience, much easier to sing. There's very little chance that you'd have heard the Hayes original before just now, but there's some chance, especially if you're into this kind of music, that you have heard the McLean version. 
It is on the same album as his most famous song. Or you might have heard it on an episode of Mad Men. That's where Chumbawamba heard it. Mad Men is a TV show set in a New York advertising agency in the 1960s. And this episode, from the middle of the first season, is called Babylon. It finds Don Draper, the main character, trying to figure out an ad campaign for the Israeli Tourism Bureau. He talks to his one Jewish friend. And I'm the only Jew you know in New York City. You're my favorite. Jesus, Don, crack a book once in a while. They talk about Babylon. Jews have lived in exile for a long time. First in Babylon, then all over the world. And they talk about Zion, both as real places and as metaphors. For me, it's more of an idea than a place. Utopia. Maybe. It's part of a larger theme of the episode, about feeling like you're in your own personal Babylon and trying to find your own personal utopia. So by the end of the episode, with all of this background built up, when they're in a folk club and the band starts playing this, it has all of that metaphorical weight behind it. plays over a montage of the various characters and their personal Zions and Babylons, and ends the episode on a somber and moving note. Never mind that the folk singers are clearly using Don McLean's arrangement when the episode is supposed to take place 11 years before McLean's version came out, but it's not like he was the only person to hear Philip Hay's original, maybe it was floating around the folk scene before that, and as the Melodians showed, neither of them have a monopoly on setting these words to music. Maybe it's also worth noting that while the Rastafari or the Roman Christians used Babylon as a metaphor, it was still a pretty literal comparison of empire to empire. Rome is Babylon. Colonial Europe is Babylon. The idea that the personal Babylon these fictional middle-class white Americans are living in is any kind of comparable to our previous examples is maybe a little overdramatic, maybe overselling their suffering or underselling the tragedy of literal exile and enslavement. That's not to say the metaphor is totally invalid. The whole point of metaphor is to compare things that aren't exactly alike. Just with any metaphor, however helpful or resonant, it's always good to keep in mind the ways in which it might not apply. So now we've traced the origins of the tune, and we've talked about the origins of the lyrics, from Babylon to Bertolt Brecht. So what do they have to do with each other? Maybe nothing. The Chumbawamba tune isn't really even based on Babylon, it's just inspired by the general tone of it. And it's pretty likely the band didn't do the historical deep dive I just did before they took their inspiration from the song, so any connections between the text and the music could be totally coincidental. But that doesn't mean they're not interesting, so let's talk about them. If nothing else, the mournful tune connects with the dark times that Brecht talks about and that Brecht was living through while he wrote it. The idea of exile is an obvious parallel. The Brecht poem isn't explicitly about it, but the fact that he wrote it while in exile hangs over the entirety of the Svenberg poems. So in a sense, both the psalm and Brecht's poem are songs about dark times spent in a strange land, whether it's millennia ago or less than a hundred years. And another interesting parallel with Psalm 137, it's a song about dark times, but you could also argue that it's a song about songs. Specifically, it's a song that asks, how are we supposed to sing under these circumstances? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Interestingly, the Hayes Hayes McLean arrangement the one that Chumbawamba based their tune on, doesn't include that line from the original psalm. But that line is probably the most relevant one to the Brecht poem that they picked for the lyrics. So, in at least this one way, the Chumbas are actually kind of closer to the original meaning than Don McLean was, even if it's just by accident. 
It's interesting that every musical version of Psalm 137 that we've talked about takes some liberties with the original text. Philip Hayes used the first two verses, and Don McLean dropped the second. Melodians use 1, 3, and 4, then added words of their own. None of them use verses 5 through 9 at all, and of course, they're all in English rather than Hebrew. Similarly, Chumbawamba made some changes to Brecht's poem, changing Will There Be Singing to Will We Be Singing, as well as adding some of their own lyrics. A deeper study could find more meaning in who made what changes and why, but for now I just thought it was worth noting. Another thing I find interesting about Psalm 137 is that it kind of answers its own question almost implicitly. How shall we sing under these circumstances? But this is a song. If you're asking the question in a song, then you're already singing in these circumstances, singing this song about these circumstances. How do you sing? You sing this. With Brecht's motto, the answer is more explicit. What do you sing in the dark times? You sing of the dark times. And that idea isn't just coming from Brecht. If you listen back to the Melodian song, you can hear one of the things they added is an encouragement to sing. Bob Marley's Chant Down Babylon is not just singing about Babylon, but about how the act of singing itself is part of what will help bring Babylon down. Like the music, in and of itself, might be a threat. I wonder what Bertolt Brecht would think of this, just like I wonder what he'd think of Don McLean's Babylon, given his preference for intellectual over emotional engagement. As songs go, Babylon is basically 100% emotion. Musically and lyrically, it's an expression of mourning. It sounds mournful. It is mournful. Sure, you can engage with it intellectually, as you might have done listening to me talk about it for the last 20 minutes, but the song doesn't really ask you to do anything but feel. So I don't know that Brecht would have cared for it. And it's easy to criticize Brecht for being anti-emotional. That's definitely one way to interpret his theories. If you want to motivate people to change the world, you're probably going to need that critical intellectual engagement Brecht wanted. But I don't think that means there's no place for emotion either. One of the reasons songs like Babylon are so effective is that they can connect with people emotionally across time and space. Psalm 137, this poem, this song about the Babylonian Empire thousands of years ago, has connected and resonated with Roman Christians and enslaved Africans and fictional 60s ad executives and one-hit wonder anarchists and maybe even us, here, now. And if that's where it stops, if we just sort of wallow in those emotions and never do anything about it, then yeah, maybe Brecht would have a problem with that. But feeling those connections to other people, to their joy or pain or fear, can be an important part of motivating us to action. And on a personal level, even some things that could be considered wallowing in emotion aren't necessarily bad. Allowing ourselves to acknowledge the darkness and feel the sadness of our own dark times can be an important step in moving through that darkness to continue making our way out of our own personal Babylons. And inasmuch as music has a place in that journey, the music that can help along the way will be different at different times and for different people. Maybe today you need the sad, mournful Don McLean Babylon. Maybe tomorrow it's the mellow Melodians version, or the upbeat disco Boney M. Maybe none of the above. I don't know your life. Here's one last quote from Brecht. The question of what artistic devices we should choose is simply the question of how we can get our audiences to become socially active. We should try out each and every conceivable artistic device which can help us towards this aim. If we're talking about music meant to help change the world, and accepting this podcast's basic premise that what changes the world is action, then the only measure of success has got to be that action.
that impact on the world. It's not about the style of music or the genre or even the intent of the original artist. It's how we take it and how we use it and what we do with it. Because the music's not a threat. Action that music inspires, you know. I'm especially indebted in my research for this episode to two books, Song of Exile, The Enduring Mystery of Psalm 137 by David W. Stowe, and Rastafari, A Very Short Introduction by Ennis B. Edmonds. And also, more generally, now that we're a couple episodes in, I feel like I really need to give more credit to archive.org. Between using their Wayback Machine feature to see old versions of the Chumba.com Frequently Asked Questions page and other sites, and their archive of scanned print resources, including hundreds of punk scenes going back to the 80s, probably half of my research material for this podcast, in one way or another, comes from archive.org. And it's all completely free. And so like I did with the Wikimedia Foundation in the first episode, I'm going to pay it forward, or maybe backward, for all of the benefits I've gotten from their free resources over the years. If you'd like to join me in supporting archive.org, one of the greatest resources on the internet in my opinion, I'll put a link to do that on the website, where as always you'll find a transcript, footnotes, citations for my sources, and other miscellanea. Page for this episode is musicthreat.net slash ep slash 003. That's musicthreat.net slash ep slash 003. Go in peace, and whatever you do, please cite your sources. Thanks for listening.